Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I want to talk about this concept of playing double or nothing with your self-esteem. So, so what do I mean by that? <laughs> and, and how does it connect to Purim? And, and so it's, this is something that I think is, is, is very, very practical and, and very, very important for, for all of us to know because, you know, there's certain, there's certain things that we do that we just simply don't have insight into. And once sort of like a light gets shined on it, then we can go, oh, okay, that's what it is. Okay, well, I don't want to do that anymore. You know, I, I finally see it for what it is. So this is something that... Um, you know, it says that a wise person can, can learn from, from everyone. And, and we should endeavor to, to learn from every single person. So you can even learn from uh, a wicked person. We can even learn a, a tremendous life lesson from, from Haman, which, which we're going to do today. And, um, you know, sometimes someone is very wise and then you can go, oh, I didn't know that before. That's so great. That's really helpful. And sometimes someone is just like a complete disaster and you can learn what not to do from them. In other words, they're great teachers, but we would call them negative role models, right? So it's sort of like, you know, in, 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 in writing for The Simpsons, I didn't want my kids to, uh, to watch it when they were young, but when they're older, I would love for them to see it. Because the thing is, is that if you don't understand how ironically the, the show is written, you think that it's promoting like bad behavior. But once you get a little bit older, you realize it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a satire on idiocy. And so once you have that level of sophistication and you, and you can watch it with those eyes, you can realize, oh, I don't want to be like that or I don't want to fall into that trap. Um, anyway, so let's learn a lesson of how not to be uh, from Haman. And, and again, um, the imagery that, that, that I want you to focus on, and we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to this, is imagine a casino table and imagine someone with like a lot of chips at the casino table sliding all of their chips into the center of the table and doing that on every single hand, on every single hand. Like every, all of everything is double or nothing constantly, right? Okay, so, so at a certain point, you're, you're going to lose, right? I mean, you're going to, or keep on losing, right? So... So we'll, we'll try to make sense out of that in, in terms of our personalities and, and how we interact with other people. So let's, let's start with who Haman was. So by conventional definitions, you would have to make an argument that Haman was the mo- one of the most successful people that ever lived. And let's just sort of like, for instance, he wasn't just wealthy. He was fabulously wealthy. And, and just there's one, one little... Um, metric to sort of like just try to just imagine his wealth for a moment that 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 I was thinking about um you know in in sort of like uh ancient measures uh a talent is is a weight that's that's a a certain weight so how much was one talent so so the menorah uh in in the base Hamikdash in the holy temple was made out of one talent of gold. And it was four and a half feet tall, approximately. So that, that's, that's, a lot of, 
it's a lot of gold, right? A talent is a lot of gold, okay? So when Haman purchased the right to exterminate the Jewish people from Ahasuerus, he paid from his own personal, you know, savings account, 10,000 talents of silver. 10,000 talents of silver, which I haven't done the math. I, I would have, maybe, maybe someone can do the math and email me, but at the current price of silver, it's got to be, I don't, I don't, I, it's, it's a, but you want to hear something even more interesting? Akashvero says, nah, you keep it. <laughs> like, who's richer? Who's richer? The one who's got 10,000 talents of silver to blow or the one who's like not even interested? No, no, no. You hold on to it. So, so, so that's just one small example of his, um, his monetary, his monetary assets. Okay. He also had a, a huge family, right? Not only that, but um, Ahasuerus, the, the Megillah tells us, was the king of all of the known lands in the world. Now, Haman was number two to the king, but not just like his chief advisor, much more significant than that. The king gave him his ring, his seal, so that he could make decrees, and those were binding. So you have to understand, so he's one of the richest people perhaps ever, giant family, and essentially, you know, from his perspective, is running the world. Okay? Now listen to this. When he would walk down the street, literally, this is not a um, metaphorical thing, literally, when he would walk down the street, everyone would bow down before him. Can you imagine, like, you're walking down Broadway, right, in the 50s, right? And it's like, just like seas of people just like bowing down as you walk down the street, right? There was one person, one person in the world who didn't bow down to him, Mordechai the Jew. And listen to what Haman's response is. If that's the case, if he is not going to bow down to me, everything I have is worth nothing. This is what he says. It's, it's recorded in the Megillah. If he's not going to bow down to me, everything I have is worth nothing to me. Okay. So you might say, okay, this, this guy is clearly insane. He's insane, right? Um, but what I would challenge you to do is to consider yourself right now. <laughs> and what I would suggest is, is that the average person has quite a large similarity to Haman in this respect. And let me tell you what I mean by that. All of us, you see, I, I, I have a lot of appreciation for just, just what it means to make it through life, <laughs> right? I, I really do. I, I, I think that if you've made it, I don't care what age you are, if you've made it to whatever your age is, you've done great. <laughs> you know, that in itself is like, take a victory lap. You know what I mean? Like just right now, just take yourself out for dinner. 
Because how did you even stay in the game? <laughs> how are you even here still, right? Much less getting out of bed in the morning, right? How, how did you do it? <laughs> it's awesome. But I mean it. I actually mean it. I actually mean it. And, and, and so what I'm trying to say is, is that, you know, going back to that imagery of the person at the casino table, you're that person. All of us are that person. All of us, just by virtue of the fact that we've made it this far in life and we're in one piece, have stacks and stacks of chips in front of us, right? So now you walk into the dry cleaners and the person is being obnoxious to you or isn't, didn't give you the proper honor <laughs> or didn't smile <laughs> or didn't... What? And you're like, ah, ah, right? Like, ha- or, or you're at, you know, some like little event, right? And someone like didn't remember who you were, even though you've been introduced to them five times, <laughs> right? And you're just like, ah, right? Like, I'm such a loser. I'm such a loser. So what is going on exactly? What's going on exactly? What we're doing is we are literally playing double or nothing with our self-esteem, with every hand, with every encounter that we have. How could it be that this dry person who works at the dry cleaners, for instance, who I have nothing to do with in my life? I mean, I wish them well. I, you know, they're, they're fine, right? But has no impact on my life, except for this one-minute encounter, right? Which is, by the way, going to end with me getting my dry cleaning, you know, whether it was a pleasant experience or not. So I'm getting what I want out of this anyway. It's an aside. But, but how could it be that I have essentially wagered my self-esteem with this casual interaction and do it on an ongoing basis with people? What am I doing? What, what kind of life management is that? Remember, Haman says, Haman has, by conventional standards, by, by conventional standards, everything. He has absolutely everything. And he says, this one person doesn't bow down before me. All of this is worth nothing to me. And of course, we understand what his end, in, his end is. He destroys himself. He becomes that, that desire, that desire destroys him. And, and, and he's hung. He's finished. So, so let's not be that guy. So I was talking about this with someone very close to me. And, and I was trying to help them through something. And, and just saying, look, you know, you're so accomplished, whether this particular event in your life goes well or not, you, you still have all of your chips, right? Because you, know, you know this now and you're going to hang on to all your chips, right? You're not going to wager your self-esteem on how this incidental thing works out, even if it's important to you at the time, right? And they said back, they said back to me something very meaningful. They said, uh, um... I said, so does, it, does that help? Is that helpful at all? And they said, well, not really. I said, okay, why isn't it helpful? 
And they said, well, because I understand it on an intellectual basis, but I don't really understand it on an emotional basis, which was a great answer. And so I said, okay, if that's the case, if you, if you agree with the logic of it and you, and you understand the, the meaning of it, and yet it's not working for you, that can only mean one thing. You don't feel as though you have all of those chips. <laughs> you don't feel that personal sense of accomplishment right now. So you have to learn how to value yourself right now because that's the missing piece for this working for you. So, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about valuing ourselves. Because unless we get to that place, then we're going to fall into this trap. Because, because now, you see, see, now the analogy changes. Because the idea is that if you don't value yourself, you aren't doing double or nothing all of the time. You are trying to win chips all of the time. Do you understand? It's like you, you don't have any chips in front of you. And what you're doing is with the dry cleaner, you're trying to say, will you please affirm my self-worth? Oh, no, now even you, you person who has nothing to do with my life, you know, and it will be so easy for you. <laughs> please, I, I can't lower the bar any lower. Please smile at me. Look me in the eye, anything, right? And then when they don't do it, then you become more desperate because you don't feel as though you have any chips and you're trying to get a chip from that person, right? You know, L.A. is just, you know, known for, it's just whatever. Like, you know, it's just funny that because it's such a car-centric, um, you know, city, that we're, we're always literally asking to be validated. You know? <laughs> One of the ironies of life out of here. We, when we're, we're going up to, like, you know, like people who are, you know, new immigrants to the country who don't even speak English and asking them to validate us. <laughs> Will you validate me, please? It's like such a, such a, you know, ironic application of this, you know? So, um... So, so that's, that's kind of that, that, that's where it's at. So, so, so in both instances, what we have to do is we have to recognize our, our value. So let me, let me tell you two teachings that to me are, are very meaningful that, 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 that help to do this. So the first one I learned from Reb Labela Eger, and uh, he talks about you know, one of the famous incidents in the, in the Torah is Hashem tells Sarah that she's going to have a child. Now, she's 90 years old and doesn't have a womb, by the way, right? I mean, this has to be, it's a total miracle that's about to take place for her, okay? And um, so, so, so she hears this news and she laughs. Now, laughing, when you hear news like that, suggests disbelief, right? And yet this is coming from God. So, so how could it be that Sarah, who, like, the entire Jewish people comes from Sarah, right? So, could it be that Sarah didn't believe? So, it, it can't be, right? So, 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 God says to her, you laughed. And she herself says, and this is recorded in the Torah, Sarah says, no, I didn't. And then God says, no, you did laugh. And that's the end of the conversation, <laughs> right? So, so, Rebbe Eger wants to figure out, what is that back and forth? 
First, Sarah is saying she didn't laugh. And then God says, you did laugh. And then she doesn't respond. So we have to kind of unpack that back and forth. Okay. So when Sarah says, I didn't laugh, what, what she was saying was, no, I didn't laugh at you, God. I believe in you. I do believe in you. But Sarah thought that she was going to do something that was going to mess up the blessing, that she thought that she was not worthy of the blessing. And so when God says you did laugh, what Hashem is saying is, no, you, la- you don't believe in yourself. And to that she doesn't respond because that's, she agrees. So, so, so what Hashem is saying and what Reb Leibel is, is saying from this is, is, is something very, very important, like a real cash Torah, you know, which is that God is saying, Sarah, if you believe in me, God is saying, I believe in you. So an, an aspect of believing in me is believing in yourself. Because I believe in you. So if you believe in me, you have to also believe in you. You know, we say these words every single morning. We say, in the modani, the modani is like, we, the first thing a person is supposed to do when they, when they wake up, as soon as you open up your eyes, you have to say thank you to God, right? And, and one of the beautiful things, just as a side note, someone pointed this out, I don't remember who, but grammatically speaking, in Hebrew, it should be um, not moda'ani, which means, uh, you know, I gratefully thank. It should be ani moda'. You should start with the word I. Ani means I in Hebrew. But how could it be that the, you're, the first word out of your mouth in the morning is I? In other words, how, like, it's, it's so beautiful that the, that the grammatically we, we defy grammar so as to make God and thanks the first thing that we comes out of our mouth. So that should be our core um, headquarters of reality and not just a reaffirmation of myself, right? I mean, ultimately, there is going to be an affirmation of self here. But, you know, we always have to know what is, what is the basis of absolutely everything. And, and, and really, really, on the deepest level, all that exists is God. So, you know, we, we, we have to always keep that in mind. You know, I, I, I saw from Reb Shlomo, um, in the name of Rebbe Nachman, something so gorgeous because it's so short and yet it just summarizes absolutely everything, which is that, you know, there are three levels. The first level is, um, you know, there's a me, right? I exist, right? Then the next level is there, there's me, and there's God. And then the third level is, there's only God. Right? So that's, I, I, I learned from Rabbi Smiles one time that there, for some people, really, in terms of what's most real, just this world is most real. For, for other people, this world is real and the next world is also very real. And still for other people, the most real thing is the next world, the, the, the ultimate reality, right? You know, Reb Tzadik HaKon in, in Takana Sashavan, one of the amazing Torahs that I, I, I saw from him is that, you know, 
imagine a pot of soup. And the pot of soup is boiling. And he does the same imagery with a loaf of bread. Okay, so you have a pot of soup. And then you have steam coming up from, from, the, uh, from, from, from the pot, right? Or you have a loaf of bread out of the oven. And out of the, the, out of the bread, there's steam coming up from the, from the loaf of bread, okay? So Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, the, the wisest person, says at the end of Kahelis that this whole world is Hevel. Hevel, um, in, in English, and in sort of like the, the popular English translations, is, is translated as vanity, right? But Hevel means really steam, or like just breath, right? So, so now look what Reb Tzadik does, something unbelievable. He, so in other words, you have this pot of soup, and there's steam coming up from it. That's Hevel. Okay, That's, that, that would be the Hebrew word for that. Or the loaf of bread, and there's steam coming up from it. That's Hevel. So he says that what Shlomo Melech, what King Solomon is saying when he says that this whole world is Hevel, that it's just steam. But coming from where? From, from the pot, the reality of the next world. In other words, this world is just sort of like emanations flowing out from the true reality, which is what exists in the next world. That's the loaf of bread in this imagery. That's the pot of soup in this analogy. And that this is just the steam coming out of the pot. Isn't that awesome? So then again, then what is this world, right? So, so one of my favorite stories, I think I've mentioned it a couple of times recently, in Holy Brother, which if you don't have this book, you, you have to get it today, buy it, buy it today. Yitta Mandelbaum, awesome book, one of the greatest Jewish books. Um, so in Holy Brother, there's a, a story about a little boy who's driving with his father, and, and I met the man who, who wrote this. Um, and the little boy says to his father, is this world real or is it a dream? And the father was like, wow, you know, like what an awesome question to hear from your child. He says, let's ask Reb Shlomo. So they called up Reb Shlomo. And, and they asked him, they said, is this world real or is it a dream? And Reb Shlomo said, this world is real in Hashem's dream. <laughs> Which is awesome. It's awesome. Because, because again, going back to the Rebbe Nachman idea, all that exists is God, right? And yet there is a reality to this, but it's almost like the steam coming out of the pot, so to speak, Right? There, there is a reality. We can't, we can't disrespect each other. We can't kill each other, God forbid. We can't, we, we, we have to honor each other. There is a reality to, to, to everything that we have to take very seriously. But yet, ultimately, all that it really, truly exists is God, right? So the world is very much real, but in this larger context of only being the divine, right? So now let's get back to this idea that, that every morning we, we don't begin with the word ani because, right? Like, are you going to build a, 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 a 10-story building on some steam, right? Like, like I'm going to start each day with the word I, right? Like, that's, any, anything that you build on that is going to collapse, right? So you have to start off with moda. Moda, and then let the Ani come. The first, give thanks to God. Then, then you can say Ani. 
Okay, but, but how does that end? Raba emunasecha. That's how the modani ends, which means I'm, you know, great is your belief. Well, it's, it, the pronoun is unclear. Great is whose belief in who, right? So the Alexander Rebbe says, great is God's belief in us. In other words, we begin every single day. The first thing out of our mouths is God believes in us, right? You know, it says, Rashi says very famously about um, Noah, about Noah, that Noah was small in faith. He was small in faith. Now, that's, that's kind of hard to understand because Noah was the only righteous person in the world. And he's building, God says, I'm going to bring a flood to the world. And, and Noah is working on this ark, building this ark for 120 years. So it's hard to say, you know, that he's small in faith, right? So how do you explain that Rashi? Because Rashi does say that. He says it very clearly. He's small in faith. So Reb Shlomo explains it, that Noah believed in God, but he didn't believe that God believed in him. Right? So, so part of believing in God is believing in yourself. And... and you see, there's nothing extra. You know, it says that there are 600,000 letters in the Torah and there are 600,000 Jews and every Jew is a letter in the Torah. And you know that if a Torah scroll is missing one letter, it's not kosher. So you can be missing one letter and the whole thing, you're not allowed to read it and certainly you're not allowed to make a blessing over it. So, and, and a letter is composed of not just the letter, but it's, it's, it's got, there, there's a crown on the letter, and there are certain what we call tagim on the top of the crown of the letter, which are these, you know, these sort of spires on top of the letters. It, it can't, everything's got to be complete, right? So, so there, there's nothing extra is the point. Like, if, you, if you've learned Torah for five minutes, you know that every single word and the spelling of every single word and the number of letters in every single word is, is excruciatingly exact. And each letter is one of us. So if one of us is missing, then the whole world doesn't work. Right? It, it says in the Talmud, if you save one life, it's like you've saved the whole world. Because... There is no extra. Do you understand? So you say, well, I'm extra. I don't really matter. I don't really count. It's a very big world. God's doing a great job without me. But then why are you here? In other words, you, you are here because you are not, precisely because you are not extra and precisely because you are needed. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been created. So every single person is, is, is absolutely necessary for the entire thing to be functioning, right? I mean, you know, there's so many good examples of this. Like, imagine, like, I want to buy something on Amazon, right? So I write the word Amazon, and I write the word com, but I leave out the dot. So you say, well, that dot, it's, so in- it's not even a letter. It's just a dot. But, so I type in Amazon.com, and I keep on pressing 
enter, and it doesn't work because I left out the dot. So every single person, you know, if that's true for a dot, how much more true is it for an entire soul? God puts a piece of himself into you, an entire soul, an aspect of himself. So at a certain point, if you, if you disrespect yourself, you're literally disrespecting God. You know, there's a, a famous story, an awesome story. The Sadiagon was the leader of the Jewish people approximately in the 800s, 800, 900, right around there, um, when uh, sort of the center of the Jewish world had moved to the Iran area, right? So... So the Sadiagon is very, very, very great, right? Very, very great. And he stayed at an inn. And um, as he was checking out of the inn, the innkeeper saw this like throng of people like gathering around him like, Sadiagon, right? And the innkeeper was devastated because he didn't realize who his guest was. And that he hadn't shown him. Here was the leader of the Jewish people in the entire world was staying at his inn and he didn't give him the proper honor that he would have liked to have. It's not that he, you know, he wanted to give him this honor. And, 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 but he didn't know who his guest was. And now he sees who his guest is. And so he runs over to him and he starts apologizing. Please forgive me. I didn't know who you were. And the Sadiagon hears this, and the Sadiagon breaks down crying. So why is the Sadiagon crying? He says, because we have a guest, our divine soul. And it's living with us. It's staying with us. It's like God, so to speak, is is housing himself inside of you. And can you imagine you're the innkeeper, and you have this guest, and you're not giving it... The, the, the proper treatment? Like we can cry a million tears. Right? Or we can like celebrate like crazy. Like, look who's staying with me. <laughs> like, you know, clearly I'm doing something right. <laughs> you know, to have a guest like this, I must be Something. And, and you are, by, by definition, by the way, by definition. You know what I mean? This isn't sort of like a pep talk. I'm, I'm just trying to tell you what baseline reality is. This is baseline reality. Okay, so now let's, let's take this a step further. You see, one of the things that I've tried to communicate in these talks um, as best I can over the years is, is this idea, is this idea, and I'm going to give you another, you know, powerful, I think, illustration of it. Um, is that, you see, if you want to actually live a Torah life, if you, if, you, if you want to be sort of like, if you want to think like a Jew, basically, right? Or just like, just be for real, right? And I'm not talking about exalted levels of, consciousness right now. I'm, 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 I'm trying to suggest that this should be 
a baseline level of consciousness because this is actually what's taking place in front of your nose right now, okay? If you want to participate in reality, God can, has to stop being an, confined to an idea in your head. Can't be an idea in your head. Like even very religious people, people who are like meticulously observant, a, probably a very large percentage of them, God is an idea in their head. You see, but you are an idea in God's head. <laughs> and by the way, God doesn't have a head. <laughs> in other words, all of us are dwelling within godliness. You see, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> Kabbalistically speaking, you know, in terms of the vocabulary of it, we have different ways of understanding the kind of like the, 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 the dimensions that exist within the world. And that the highest dimension of spiritual sort of like revelation, the holiest area, let's say, is called Atsilus, right? That's the highest, highest, right? So we live in the most concealed place. We live in the lowest, lowest, right? It's called the world of action, Olamasiya, okay? But here's the thought, here's the point. God is as present in our dimension as he is in the highest heavens. He's equally present here as he is in the highest dimensions. We just don't perceive it. But that doesn't mean that he's any less here, which means that on some level, the dimension that we live in is in the highest heavens because there's an equal amount of godliness here as there is in the highest heavens. So now imagine just for a moment, right now, I am dwelling right now in the highest heavens. But now I'm going to blow your mind, okay? Or this blows my mind. This is actually higher than the highest heavens because when you observe and recognize God amidst his concealment, you are doing even more than the angels can do in the highest heavens. <laughs> so it's like not only are we dwelling in the in what amounts to, is tantamount to the highest heavens, because God is equally present here as he is there. But by recognizing him, and then can you imagine, not only do you recognize him, but you actually light Shabbos candles? Or you actually put on tefillin? That's like... Right? You're actually making life choices based on your recognition of godliness? These are like atomic bombs going off in terms of their impact. So now I heard from Rabbi Leibowitz in the name of the Kli Yaker. Okay? It's always a good day when you can learn something beautiful from the Kli Yaker. So, so we, there's a phrase that we talk about in terms of the angels in heaven. That's what we're talking about right now, right? Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. 
Holy, holy, holy is, they say the Lord of hosts, whatever that means. The whole, but here's the key phrase, the whole world is filled with his glory. Right? That's what we're saying. Like, even this world, right? It's all filled with his glory. He's equally present. So, so the Kliyakar explains, what does that mean, kadosh, kadosh, kadosh? What does it mean? It would be great to have a, a working definition of that, right? We say it all the time. So, so the angels say to each other, it says, if you actually look in the, in the prayer book, it says, they, and they say to each other, kadosh, right? So, so first one angel turns to the other and says, kadosh, you're holy, recognizes the holiness of its neighbor. And by the way, in the Torah, it says that you should love your neighbor like yourself. Reb Shlomo has a, a beautiful, beautiful explanation of that. Like we tend to think, or I'll speak for myself, when I hear the word neighbor, I think, okay, here's my physical address. My neighbor is the person who lives in the apartment next door or in the house next door. That's my neighbor, right? right? But Reb Shlomo says, you know who your neighbor is? Whoever you're next to in the moment. <laughs> right? So, so an angel turns to the, the, its neighbor, the one next to it, and says, holy, you're holy, right? And then that angel turns back to the person and says, holy, you're holy. And as Rabbi Leibowitz said, and I, I thought this was a, a very, very nice insight and very true, a lot of times it's easier for us to point to someone else and say you're holy than to accept when they point back to us and say you're holy, Right? But what I'm trying to show you through all these things that I'm saying is that that this is the basic, your holiness is, is the basic reality of the world. In other words, it, 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 almost, it almost doesn't have anything, it's, almost, it's not contingent on your self-esteem is what I'm trying to say. It's just the basic fact. You have two arms, you're holy. Do, do you understand? It's, it's, we have to liberate our notion of our own holiness from our own lack of self-esteem. Because it's just like, you know, I'm really Ethiopian. Can I see your passport? You're not Ethiopian. <laughs> it says here, USA. <laughs> no, 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 but I'm really Ethiopian. No, you are not. <laughs> like, in that pot of soup over there, you know what's really there in there? You know what's boiling in there, you know? Mushroom barley soup. And you open up the pot, it's chickens. It's not mushroom, it's... In other words, there are facts. There are facts, and you can believe something, but just because you believe... In other words, you can believe incorrect things. <laughs> If you decide, if you if you begin to look at the world through your own lack of self-esteem, and decide that 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 is the since I truly feel terrible about myself, all the thoughts that emanate about the world that come from my lack of self-esteem, since I truly believe I'm worth nothing, must also be true. But you see, you've got like a totally now warped view of what is actually real. 
you know, one of the popular imageries that, that, that people like, and I like this very much too, I don't know who the first person to say it is, is that, you know, you can, you know, like someone, I think the way I heard it the last time was someone saying, you know, every, I look at the world, it just looks so dirty. It's, and it's, nothing is clear. It's just, and the person takes off the guy's glasses, just rubs them, puts them back on, he goes, oh. <laughs> you know, it's so straightforward, right? But can I tell you something? All that exists now that you look through the world with clear glasses. It was all there before when you had the smudgy glasses on. So, so now we're up to the second Kadosh, right? We've got Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. We want to explain it. So first the angel turns to the first angel and says, you're holy, that angel turns back to the first angel and says, you're holy. And now that they understand each other's holiness, they're really able to appreciate the holiness of God. And then they turn together and they say to God, holy, you're holy. So, you know, just to map that out, what's very cool about it is, even though it's kadosh, 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 it's all the same word, it's not linear, the progression. It's exponential, right? The, 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 the graph goes way up doesn't just stay flat, even though it's the same word three times. There's this higher and higher revelations of holiness taking place, right? So, so our holiness is a fact of life, right? Because we dwell, in the, we dwell in what's really even higher than the highest heavens, right? So... So, and that's, and that's actually what's going on. That's actually what's going on. That's the amazing thing. See, you know, in, in certain quote-unquote sophisticated circles, it's considered a sign of sophistication to be cynical. But it actually takes much greater sophistication to understand what is really going on and the fact that what is really going on is great, actually. Right? That doesn't mean there isn't tons of pain and suffering in the world. There is. But, you know, we have to kind of get the greater context also. Right? And the greater context is, is that we're just like engulfed in awesomeness. Right? That 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 is that is the baseline reality. So I wanna I wanna go deeper into the text of the Torah now. Um and 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 tell you just um something that I learned from uh Rabbi Trugman's book. It's a wonderful book called Seasons of the Soul. Uh, he's a student, uh, a longtime uh, Talmud chassid of, of Reb Shlomo Karlbach and uh, Rabbi uh, Ginsberg, Yitzhak Ginsberg, and, and, and many others, and is a Talmud chacham and has written some, some awesome, awesome books. And I'm, I'm reading uh, 
I'm reading uh, his writings right now, uh, or some of his writings on, on Purim. And, and there's, a, there's, a great, there's a great teaching here that I want to share with you. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to be talking in detail about the letters right now. So if you, if you want to grab a, a chumash, <laughs> it, it would be helpful to actually look at the, the words themselves, just because uh, uh, it's very simple if you actually look at the words, what I'm talking about. But um, it might be hard to kind of keep in your mind. Hopefully not. I'll, I'll do my best to explain it. But, but um, a visual aid uh, will come in handy right now. So if you have a stone chumash, that's the blue art scroll uh, uh, Torah, it's on page 392 on the bottom, the second to last line in the middle. It's uh, chapter 17 of Shmos, Exodus, uh, verse 16, the last, the last verse in Parshas Bishalach. Um, and it's talking about a Moloch. We know that Purim is coming up, and Purim is talking about reversals. You think something is going one way, and then it's going another way, you know? Just like, and we see it all the time in life. See it all the time in life. And really, if you can sum up poor, excuse me, if you can sum up poor in one, one phrase, it, it would be just that, that even if, it th- if, you, if you ever get to the point where you think God isn't present, either in, in your life or in the world, and then you realize, oh no, not only is God present, he's been running absolutely everything. So, and of course the amazing thing about the Megillah, which tells the story of Purim, is that God's name is not mentioned in the whole Megillah. So it seems like he's absent, but by the end of the story you realize how he's been running absolutely everything. It's unbelievable. And you know, the timeline is one of the things. We've talked about how because we have this dimension of time and things happen very slowly or it seems like they're not happening at all, that we tend to think that God is absent or he's not listening to our prayers or whatever it is. But this is just an illusion. This is just a product of, the, of time, basically. And one of the things, um, I hope I'm getting these numbers right, but they're close. If I'm not exactly right, they're close. Uh, the sages try to explain, why did this decree come down that the... Jews should be eliminated, right? How, how could this decree come down? So they say it's because the Jews participated, or one reason is because the Jews participated in the feast of Ahasuerus. And, um, and then some people even go further and they say, and kosher food was served there. So then it becomes like very sort of like, why then, what was the problem of attending that party? You know? And the problem was, the problem was, I heard this explanation from Rabbi Ru, um, an amazing explanation. What, what, was, what was being celebrated at this feast was the fact that the Jewish people were never going to return to Yerushalayim, to Jerusalem. And that, that's why they were showing the vessels from the Beis Migdash there with what they felt was impunity. Like, there was no... That the, that the prophecy that the Jewish people would return after 70 years, that that 70 years had passed, they miscounted, by the way. Um, because the way you measure a year is according to uh, the, the length that a king has sat on his throne. 
And so it becomes actually over the course of several kings and when in the years you start counting, it's actually a very complicated calculation and they weren't doing it according to that. As such, they, they, they thought that the prophecy that the Jews would return back to Israel had, had ended. And so by the Jews going to this feast, essentially we were taking part in this celebration that we would never return to Israel. And that was worthy of a divine decree to come down. Like, it's, you know, like, you know, all of us, and I'm speaking for myself right now, believe me, all of us who are not living in Israel right now, we should at least want to be in Israel. Do you understand? Like, even if for whatever reasons our life circumstances are not in the place where we feel as though we can get there right now and move there right now, okay, that's fine. But at least want to go. Or at least want to want to go. In other words, it's like, I don't even want to go. But I can want to want to go. I could desire to desire to go. You know what I mean? Just as long as you can attach yourself to that spectrum, then, then, then you remove yourself from this group. Right? So, so that, that's important. So, so everything, gets, everything gets turned around. And by the way, Megillah to Esther. Megillah like, has, the, has the root of the word to reveal. Esther means like, Hasarpanim means to, means hidden, the hidden face. So, so Megillus Esther actually means to reveal the hidden. That, that's what the name of the scroll is. Isn't that interesting? Um, and what, is, what does that mean, to reveal the hidden? To reveal the fact that even though God's name is not mentioned, he's a thousand percent present. So I was just going to tell you this timeline. That's the reason why I brought it up. So if, we, if the decree came down because we attended this feast... So if you read the story in the Megillah itself, it, 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 it plays out like, okay, we attended the feast, and basically shortly thereafter, the decree came down. And there's a certain logic in our mind that that's the way it should work. It was something like approximately nine or ten years between our attending the feast and this decree coming down. To me, that's a, like, a, when I first learned that, that's like a mind blower, because it shows you how patient God is, Right? And it also helps to explain just the length of the exile. You know what I mean? And just the, how long it's taken us to kind of get everything right in the world. Like, it's just, there is this aspect of time. And, and, and this is one of those rare opportunities where we see sort of the cause and effect. Right? I'll give you another example of it in the Megillah. Vashti is executed. And then there's this search, and then the king has a new queen. It's Esther, right? The time period between Vashti being executed and Esther being the new queen was something like four or five years. Again, it just gives you, it just kind of takes it out of story form. And, And all the dates, by the way, are in the Megillah itself. So if you just read the Megillah carefully... What I'm telling you, this is not some commentary or whatever it is. This is right in the Megillah itself. It's just that we rebuy it so quickly that we're not doing the math. 
Um, but again, you know, this is, in a way, this is one of the privileges of life because it does last, right? And we do get time to fix things and we do get time to enjoy and to celebrate. And every, you know, we have a holiday every seven days. Shabbos is, we literally have a national holiday every seven days. You know, it says, I heard from Rabbi Shlomo that one of the reasons why Haman hated the Jews is because we had so many holidays. <laughs> and, and, and God said, just for you, I'm going to make one more. <laughs> and then there's an old joke, an old joke, that Hitler, Yomach Shemo, goes to a fortune teller and, and, and asks, what day am I going to die? And the fortune teller says, you're going to die on a Jewish holiday. And he says, which one? And the fortune teller says, any day you die is going to be a Jewish holiday. <laughs> so, so, anyway. Um, so, so, this whole idea of reversals, right? And, you know, we, we have this phrase in the Tehillim, Gal Enai, which is, we say, ask God, Open our eyes. And this concept that, that all of us are blind until God opens up our eyes, right? To, that till we're able to actually see what's always been there. See, again, this is another one of those fundamental thoughts if you actually want to live in reality. We think, I call this bad math, we think God exists to the extent that I believe in him. Right? As though I'm manufacturing the existence of God, right? God exists whether you believe in him or not. <laughs> you understand? And they're sort of like, oh wow, you're you're really religious. God really believes for you. You know, really exists for you. Me, I'm not so religious. There's only like a tiny bit of God in the world for me. But it's not subject to how much you believe in him. God exists one thousand percent whether whether you're aware of it or not. Do you, do you understand? So, so, so what happens is, at the end, by the end of the Purim story, our eyes are opened. Our eyes are open, and we realize that amidst the darkness, God was always there. God was always running all the events. But you see, the thing is, is that we have to be strong in our lives because we have to combat this thing called time, which really blurs our perception and allows us to not believe because we go, I'm working so hard and I'm praying so hard and I'm doing so many good things. Where's, where's, where's the cash, God? Where's the cash? What's going on? So we have to grapple with this element of time. But don't be fooled by time. Don't be fooled by it. God is equally present in this world as he is in the highest heavens, and even if it seems clouded over. So what's the, what's the force? We have different names for the force that clouds over the presence of God. And one of the absolute primary ones is Amalek. Okay, Amalek is the name of the nation. It's the arch enemy of the Jewish people. It's the nation that Haman, who's trying to exterminate us, right, it's the name of the nation that Haman is from. 
And of course, Amalek attacked us right after the, the Red Sea split, after this awesome miracle. It's still, it, they, they knew they were going to lose, and yet they attacked us anyway because they thought that that could help obscure and weaken just the, the knowledge of God in the world. I mean, they're like, you know, kamikaze, evil, horrible, like, it's, it's horrible, right? So, so now we can get back to that verse that I was pointing you to. Again, if you, if, if you, a lot of people have the, the stone chumish, that's the blue art scroll chumish. It's on page 392 on the bottom there, the second to last line in the middle. Uh, the very last verse. So I'll, it's, I'll just read you the, the, the relevant English phrase, and then I'll, I'll show you the Hebrew. Um, it says that, 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 that this phrase, the throne of God, it's talking about the throne of God. And the way, um, the way you would say it, the way it would be fully spelled out, the way you ought to say the throne of God is kisei, right, which is modern Hebrew for chair, so it's throne. You would say kisei, meaning throne, Hashem, yud kei God's God's holiest name, right? So that would be how you ought to say it. And yet, very interestingly, remember we're talking about Amalek and, and, and the war against Amalek, which is ongoing until Mashiach comes. So, so the way it says it in the Torah, though, it doesn't say kisei, it says case. It's missing the last letter, which is Aleph. And it doesn't say yud kei vav kei, the full name of God. It just says yud and he. It's missing the last two letters. Remember, we always talk about... Um, like whenever we want to try to darshan, like explain the name of God and how it relates to the world, I always recommend spelling it top to bottom. So you have Yud, which is the highest heavens, and underneath that the He, and then the Vav, which brings down this godliness, connects it to the bottom He, which stands for this world. Okay, that's what that's that's very conventional explanation that I just gave you, but you 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 understand it as orders of light or orders of holiness coming down into this world, okay? So interestingly, when we're talking about Amalek, the last two letters are missing, the Vav and the He, meaning to say, God, you're up there, but you're not down here. That's what Amalek wants you to think, because Amalek covers over, because the presence of evil, Amalek is synonymous with evil, because the presence of evil in this world makes you think God is missing from this world. So it, 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 it makes us think that that vav in the hay is missing. It's there, it's just covered over. You see, it's, it, this is a very, very important distinction. Listen very carefully to what I'm saying right now. We think Amalek kicked out God from this world. Right? That's why the vav in the hay are missing. We think that God, that, that, that Amalek, rather, exiled God from this world. Nothing could be further th- from the truth. That's a ridiculous, impossible thought. If God is exiled from this world, then there is no world. Do you understand? Right? If God is absent from this world for a nanosecond, it's like imagine being in a room with a closed door and, and no windows. If God disappears from this world, the lights go off. The world disappears. Do you understand? So, so God is present in this world. What happens is, is that 
The presence of a malik covers over our perception and our ability to see God. We look at evil, and then all of us are geniuses, right? We look at evil and we go, well, if there's evil, then there can't be God. But that's just our own bad math. It means that there's incompleteness of revelation in this world. Right? That's what we're davening for. We're davening that the whole world should be able to understand the oneness of God and perceive the oneness of God. By the way, with that in mind, I want to tell you something. You know, all of the the sort of like the sort of one-liner for Judaism is Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, right? That's our holiest phrase. We say it, that's the last words we say before we go to sleep at night. And if a person is worthy, the last person, the last phrase that we say while we're alive in this world. If you can leave the world on the Dalit of Echad, you know, you did something right. You know, it's a great privilege. It's a great privilege. So I'll tell you the Rashi on it, right? We know basically it means God is one that the whole world belongs to God, that God's the only thing that exists, okay? All that's true. All that's true. That's what the Shema is saying, okay? However, Rashi gives an amazing, an amazing explanation of the Shema. He says it's a timeline. It's a timeline throughout history from now, from the exile, until Mashiach comes. Listen to how he explains it. Shema Yisrael... Hear Israel, listen Israel, understand Israel. Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem is our God. Right now, Hashem is the God of the Jewish people. Hashem Echad. But in the future, Hashem will be the one and only. He will be the one God recognized by all the people of the world. The only power recognized by all the people of the world. And interesting... According to Rashi, the Shema is a timeline throughout history, culminating in the whole world saying Echad. In other words, God is always here, but it will be revealed before the eyes of all the world that he's the only one. Okay. So now, let's put it all together and we're going to wrap it up. Okay. So what did we just say? We said that you've got... Three missing letters here. Case Ka, right? The, the, the throne of Hashem. But the letter Aleph is missing from the word throne. And the Vav and the He, which stands for these dimensions that we're in right now, it seems like it's missing because Amala covers it over. It's here, but it seems like it's missing. Okay. Now, the... The, 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 this phrase that everything flips around on Purim, how do, how do you say it? How do you say it in, in Hebrew? V'na'afolchu. Okay? Two words. V'na'afolch, which means to turn over, and hu means it. Like, it becomes turns, turned over. Okay? So what is it? What is it? In Hebrew, it's the word hu. Okay? Now, how do you spell hu? Um, you spell it Hey, Vav, Aleph. Okay? Now, if you reverse the letters, right? It means to reverse who. Literally, Nahafoch, who means reverse the word who. So if you reverse the word who, it spells Aleph, Vav, Hey. 
What are the missing letters from Case Ka? What are the missing letters from the throne of glory? The Aleph, the Vav, and the He. And that whole thing becomes reversed. Good for him! What follows now are some questions and answers. I was focusing when you were talking on door, door. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Door, door. Okay, sure. Yeah. Okay. So, just like the the Aleph is missing from the Kisei. Yes. Okay. If you, you know, door, door is like door, va, door. The vav, door, va, door. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And... Purim is a holiday until Mashiach comes that we're going to be celebrating, and even after Mashiach comes. But if you add the Aleph to Ad, the door, and you put the Aleph, you have Adar. Yeah. Adar. Love it. Love it. Awesome. Awesome. So in other words, from Adar to Adar, door of a door for all eternity, we're going to be celebrating Purim. Exactly. Awesome. Beautiful. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure people say it. I'm sure it has to be. I was. I was thinking also along those lines that, um, and I'm sure people say what I'm about to say also, that, uh, you know, the Gemara says that the two happiest days of the year, one or one of the two happiest days of the year is, um, is uh, Yom Kippur. It says that. So, and you know, Purim is it, Yom. The, the way Yom Kippur is referred to in the Gemara is. It's called Yom Hakipurim. That, that's that's how it's called in the Gemara. So, 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 K is a prefix. This is from the Ari. K is a prefix in Hebrew, which means like. So, Yom Hakipurim would literally mean a Yom Kippur would be translated literally as a day that is like Purim. In other words, Yom Kippur in its holiness is only a day that's like Purim. So that Purim is even higher in a way. Because, because, you see, it's easy for angels to see God. It's harder for people to see God. So, so on Yom Kippur, we're like angels. We're not eating. We're wearing white. You know, we, we have all these angelic sort of like customs that we do because we, we really are like souls. And it's just a big soul cleansing on Yom Kippur. That's what's going on. But to be able to celebrate God's presence and and also to do tshuva, like, and, and all these things on Purim amidst your body, when you're actually not just recognizing your body, but you're actually embracing your body because you're eating and you're drinking, right? You're strengthening your body. Like, as you're strengthening your body to, 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 to be reaching out and seeing God in absolutely everything, super awesome. Absolutely super awesome. So, so what I want to say, and, and I'm sure I'm quoting a, a legion of rabbis here is, you know, in, in Torah, and this all goes back to the fixing of the tree of knowledge when we ate from the tree of knowledge. So eating is, is quite holy in Judaism. Um, if, if Yom Kippur is such a holy day, where's the eating? Right? So, so the, probably the conventional answer is the, 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 the feast of Yom Kippur is actually the day before Yom Kippur. Right? It's, it's Erev Yom Kippur 
where it's very holy to eat before, before Yom Kippur, the ninth day of the month of Tishrei. Um, but there's another way of learning it, that the real feast of Yom Kippur is on Purim. Talking about, you know, believing in yourself. You know, it's not enough to believe in God, but you have to believe in God to get the full impact that God believes in you so that combining the two, you become, you know, uh, you become more, more shalai, okay? So, take a look, I mean, think about Esther. She did not believe, she, she won a beauty contest, right? So she didn't necessarily believe totally in herself. So when Mordecai said to her, um, you know, uh, if, if you're not gonna do what you need to do, to save the Jewish people, then then Hashem will find another another way of, of doing this or, or coming around. So until she learned to, I guess, believe that she had power, you know, in her own in her own right because she was linked necessarily to Hashem, then she was able to act in a, in a full sense to do what she had to do. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. You know, uh, I just say this as an aside, just something I was thinking about. I haven't really seen anyone say this. Um, you know, there's a famous gematria. Uh, yayin uh, is how you say wine. And then the miracle was really done over this wine feast because that's when Esther says about, you know, essentially says to there's someone who wants to kill my people, and, and including me. And Ahasuerus is like, you know, he's remembering, like, Vashti got killed, and he loved Vashti a lot, and now someone wants to kill you? Like, who would dare do that? And she turns and points to the only other guest at the feast that she had orchestrated masterfully, him, he, he him. And Haman is like completely caught off guard. And then that's the end. So it was at a wine feast that this took place. So, so you know, we have this mitzvah to drink on Purim. And, and it's really wine, by the way. So, you know, people think that, oh, I'm just getting drunk. So whatever. But it's really about wine. But, but anyway, that's not the point I wanted to make. The point I want to make is that Yayin famously is the same gematria as Sod, which means secrets. Okay, 70. They're both 70. Very interesting that it's 70, by the way, because 70 is also, there's 70 nations. So 70 is basically this illusion of multiple powers in this world. The letter um, in Gamatria, in the Aleph base, that 70 is ayin, it's your eye. With your eye, you perceive multiple powers. So you have to kind of like um, make sure that you guard your eyes. And you don't believe your eyes, really, because your eyes can believe you that everyone has power, but only God has power, right? So, so, what, so here's, here's the thought that I want to say, is that on some level, I think Purim is about keeping secrets. See, we're talking about the revelation of secrets, right? But it's also about keeping secrets, and I'll tell you what I mean by it. You see... Everyone had to know that Esther was Jewish. 
all the Jewish people had to know that Esther was Jewish. And like when you read the Megillah, how could it be that Ahasuerus, who's, I'm sure has guards and a secret service, name me an empire in history that didn't have a secret service. He's got guards and a secret service and he doesn't know the nationality of his own wife when he's begging his wife to, to tell him. And Haman, if, if Ahasuerus doesn't have a secret service, you better believe Haman had a secret service. And you're telling me Haman wasn't equipped with the knowledge that, that the closest wife to Ahasuerus was Jewish? When all the Jews must have known? How is that possible? So it must be that the Jews really kept a secret. They really kept a secret. And you know what? It saves the entire life of the nation. Because had Haman known, you don't think that he would have orchestrated a way to get her executed the way he got Vashti executed? I mean, he was like the snake from the Garden of Eden. You don't think he would have figured out a way? Or he would have just killed her himself, right? What does he have to go through a plot? To have someone go up to her and put a knife in her head, right? So, so they didn't know. How did they not know? Because we knew how to keep a secret. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.